Welcome to episode 62 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much. How are you doing today? You know, like always, doing pretty good. It would be shocking if one of these times we started this off by saying, I'm just horrible. Yeah, we should do that sometime just to <laughs> like even things out. What I am excited for, though, as per our usual custom, is to hear what you're affirming this week. So I am affirming DayQuil and NyQuil products. So there's, there's been this there. like, yeah, there's been this like massive upper chest respiratory cold infection thing just in the air, literally in the air in this area and everybody is sick. So, um, I should like invest in the generic brand of like the local Dayquil, NyQuil substitute because that stuff is like a lifesaver right now. So we're, we're like deep into like day seven of this really bad chest cold. And I don't know how we would have gotten through it without this like amazing medicine that we have. Am I the only one that's hearing Phil Collins? I can feel it coming in the air tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know that song. I can feel it coming in that song. I I do not recognize that song. It could be because you're singing it and I, I mean, you're singing it, but I don't know. Oh my! I feel like you just channeled the like the spirit of Matt Butts for a second there. No, oh my goodness, Phil Collins, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. It's like a classic. It's got that like little like dr- drum solo in the middle. You, you got to look this up. I got okay, nothing. Okay, so I'll um, look it up. I'll, I'll I'll do some research and come back. To I'm, you. I'm changing my affirmation to Phil Collins. <laughs> I can feel it coming in the air tonight, which is just like a classic, nice. a classic song. Um, the other thing I want to affirm is. Having a life partner to help you put air in your tires. So if for any other reason than just that, you should definitely get married because it's like working on a pit crew, especially if you have one of those machines where you have to put in the money and you only get like a certain period of time. So what a big difference it makes having some help. And I just want to affirm that. So go get after that, people. Go get somebody to help you put air in your tires. Yeah. The local uh, tire place, if you buy tires there, then they'll do free rotations and air pressure stuff for you. So you just have to like, like pull forever? up and they check all your tires. Yeah. As far as I know. Wow. That's it's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome, actually. And it, it, it is like a real pit crew when you pull in there. You pull up and they like run out and like check all the pressure and like check your windshield washer fluid. It's pretty awesome. Wow. I, that's probably worth it just to see that happen. I know. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, that is great. All right, so what are you so denying denials. this week? I am denying, I'm going to get a little bit aggressive here. I'm denying Ooh, I like it. the scholarship of John Walton, who um, I'm reading The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, but he's also written uh, a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1, and I think he wrote one called The Lost World of Genesis 2, or maybe it's Genesis 2 and 3. Um, and someone pointed out to me that The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest is written by John H. Walton, and J. Harvey Walton, and they asked me if that's the same person, and I, I don't actually know, but I don't think it is. But um, this book is like a perfect example of what happens when you let ancient Near Eastern criticism or ancient Near Eastern historiography determine your interpretation. So this book contains such gems as uh, it's not immoral to worship idols, 
Uh, the Canaanites were not under God's law. God's law doesn't actually tell us how to live. Um, following New Testament would make you a good Roman citizen, but not a good uh, 20th century citizen. So it it's just bad. I mean, it, I tried to be like charitable as I was reading it, and I'm not quite done with it, but it's it's a head shaker and not in a good way. So if you're looking at this book um, or if you're thinking about reading his other works, um, probably just skip them. That's good to know. That's my denial. It's John Walton. Yeah, that is going to make you? my denial seem totally frivolous. <laughs> we, <laughs> it's okay. We, we need, need, we need to balance it a little bit. So I'm just denying daylight savings time because it's annoying. That's what I'm it denying. Is. And because... Most, if you're like me or you live in like the northeastern part of the United States, so now we're getting to that weird space where it's basically dark when you get up and dark when you get home from work. And yeah. I usually try to do, if I can, like a little bit of you know running in the neighborhood when I get home from work. But now it's like ridiculously dark, which means I'm throwing on like a, like this week I had to throw on a headlamp and some like reflectors yeah. and a vest. So I just, I never feel, you you can't feel cool running with a headlamp on. It just seems like you're traumatized or tra- like minor or like you're, you're running from something dangerous. I don't know. It's just impossible to feel yeah. cool. So I just feel kind of lame with a headlight. And I feel like everybody who's driving by me is like, Oh, you're that dude. You've got to run yeah. and you got to throw in a headlamp. Yeah. So I was listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about um, sleep and how important sleep is. And they were saying that one of the best ways that we can test this is every year um, when we in the spring, when we lose an hour of sleep, there's like a 29% increase in heart attacks the following day. I've heard that. And every year in the fall where we gain an extra hour of sleep, there's uh, like a opposite 29% decrease in heart attacks. Now, I'm sure there's all sorts of like ways you can explain that people take their medicines at different times or you know, I'm sure there's reasons for it, but, um, it just shows like sleep is really important. And this weird, stupid thing that we do with the clocks, I mean, it's, it's all made up, right? It's the right. clocks are yes, all made up. Exactly. It's just an arbitrary way to measure the passing of time, but it's, it's dumb. I'm t- completely with you on that. It's just the stupidest thing in the world. Good. And before we get lots of hateful email from statisticians everywhere who are listening to us, correlation is not causation. We recognize that. But it's true. Still suspicious. But it's a pretty strong correlation. Right. I mean, it's it's, it's like the exact same increase on one end of it as it's the same decrease on the other. It's a it's a pretty strong. Let's say it's a statistically significant correlation. (laughs) This got so nerdy and I love it. Yeah, you're you're talking my language right now. We we did a hypothesis test and we found this to be statistically significant. (laughs) So we have an exciting announcement this week. We do. What is our exciting announcement, Jesse? Our exciting announcement is as we've been like prepping people, getting them stoked and pumped up and dragging this out like I am right now, we have added another amazing podcast to the lineup as part of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. We have. We've welcomed the Nerd Gospel Podcast, which is um, near and dear to my heart because I love being a nerd and I love the gospel. And they just merge those two things so beautifully. So it's a podcast about like nerd culture, movies, comic book movies, Star Wars, Star Trek stuff. Um, and a lot of it is kind of like drawing themes out of those things, but just discussing like how do you share the gospel in the culture that you're in? So it's it's a great way to kind of look at um, what it's like to live life 
on mission and just sort of like bring that to everything you do, even the entertainment that you consume. And if you're like me, so check it out. And you don't know anything, as I've admitted on this podcast before, about Star Wars, Star Trek, how to differentiate them, the various names of all the characters. I love this podcast uh, because of the gospel and because basically I'm getting an education in those things. So double win. Yes. Something for everybody. Indeed. Yes. So check it out. Um, if you're a subscriber to our Society of Reform Podcasters mega feed, uh, you already have their episodes in your podcast. Mega feed. Um, if you're not a subscriber to the mega feed, then why aren't you a subscriber to the mega feed is what I want to know. <laughs> did Did you just like universally or unilaterally rather decide to call this mega feed? That's like a seriously impressive name for this. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know where that came from, but it it seems like the right way to describe it. Maybe like Master Feed would be yeah. more accurate, but I like Mega Feed. Yeah, it just carries Mega so feed much seems weight. Better. Yeah, it's like yes. the weight of glory. It, it's like you C.S. Lewis, the name of that whole thing. I did. So speaking of weight, we have a kind of a particular weighty topic tonight. We do. That's true. Yes, it just I, got serious. I approach this topic with some trepidation and some. Um, awareness of the gravitas of this topic. So we are going to talk about a theological controversy slash theological camp called the federal vision. So Jesse, have you run into this theology much online or in your reading um, besides just researching for the pod, the podcast tonight? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is something that tends to kind of come up in reform circles, but I mean, we should probably say at the outset that the reason why we're talking about something like this, the reason why it actually matters is because like all theology, this is particularly attempt to understand how we are made right with God, what salvation is, and then how that outworking actually comes to be part of our lives. So this is yeah. one of those questions about, well, how do we put all these pieces together? And just like all theology, those who kind of espouse this view are really it's it's Genesis comes out of this idea that we're products of our time. And so we understand something about how the church is behaving and whether or not we see that that has a tendency to either marry closely with scripture or we feel like it doesn't. And so this is a response to some of those things. So I think if you've done any kind of just basic dialoguing with people who are trying to sort that out in a very kind of nuanced or even academic way in terms of Reformed theology, you've at least come up across like FV somewhere because it's very related to like new perspectives yes. on Paul, right? So, yeah, so go ahead. So it's it's basically, we're, we're kind of, this is kind of rounding out some of this discussion we had before, but I, I think we both thought it would be good to kind of just talk this out a little bit. And if you haven't heard of it, I think we wanted to at least give like a brief introduction of where it comes from, what are the distinctives, and then what are some of the, like the more nuanced things that it would be worth understanding and understanding what they mean? Right. So I want to give a, a little bit of a disclaimer, and we don't usually take this kind of approach on the show. Um, most of the time, what we would say is to get a hold of the primary sources for a topic and read and digest them um, and really you know, give a thought a fair shake. This is not one of those um, one of those times. So I don't want to say that federal vision advocates are heretics because they're not, right. um, they're not evil people. They're just trying to interpret scripture and do the best that they can. But this theology is um, dangerous and it's confusing and we'll show you kind of why it's confusing. But in, in brief, they take language that is, has sort of a defined theological meaning. So justification means a particular thing in the reform tradition. Um, and they'll use the word justification 
in a sentence that makes it sound like they're saying the same thing as everybody else, but they're loading the term justification uh, with all sorts of other baggage. So if you're not well read on the subject or if you're not really grounded in, um, you know, good reform thought, it's very easy to get confused and kind of taken off guard by what these guys have to say. So I would say um, if you really want to research this, there'll be links in the um, in the show notes. The first place that you need to go is I'm going to put a link to the PCA study commission um, that was commissioned in 2007 to research this view and to determine whether or not it falls in line with uh, the Westminster standards. And spoiler alert, uh, they, they, in the strongest words possible, decided that it doesn't. So the, the report does a really good job of laying out the terms um, of the debate and then also kind of going through each, each issue and kind of addressing what, is, what are the reform standards, what are the Westminster standards. Um, and I'm saying Westminster because that's what they did, but the three forms of unity would hold the same thing. London Baptist Confession, obviously, since it's, it's a continuation of the Westminster. They would hold basically the same theology. What does the Westminster say? What does Federal Vision say? And where are those things at odds? Um, the report also includes new perspective um, on Paul. The two theologies have some similar kinds of um, implications. They come from a very different starting point, and some of the um, some of the kind of outcomes are also very different. But they have enough in common that the study commission treated them together. So. Don't go straight to um, don't go to Amazon and buy the Federal Vision, the book um, that's that's not going to work very well for you. And it, it's very likely to kind of lead you down some paths that you shouldn't go. So go check out the study commission. If it's still something that you're really interested in understanding, then go and start to read some other works, some primary sources. We're going to talk through kind of the closest thing to a confessional statement that the Federal Vision guys have published. Um, and this is an old controversy in terms of this happened about a decade ago, but it's still a controversy that kind of keeps rearing its ugly head in reform circles right now. So let me set the stage if I could a little bit. So before we talk a little bit just about what, if we had to give a summary, what are some of like the core underpinnings of this particular view? Let me say that I think that the federal visionists are essentially reacting to what they saw were like problems in contemporary America especially evangelical and reformed churches, which they saw were like rampant individualism, neglect of covenantal objectivity of salvation, this idea of how do we understand the right. covenant and express it, overemphasized, um, I guess, seeking assurance of salvation and this tendency toward what they would describe as like antinomianism in some circles. And then how right. the sacraments as signs and seals are part of how we understand salvation. So we're all products of our time. All theology carries some bias. And I think that, I just want to say up the front, that some of this is well-intentioned, but be, the pendulum just moved way far the other way around. But they were trying to respond to these things. And I think as we talk through this, we're going to see that that's the common theme, that there is a response. And that's why they're using the same language, but defining it differently, because they're trying to push back against what they saw was a need for a new type of revival, a, a return to what would be like the first core principles of the Reformation. Is that fair as like a setup? It is. And if, if you listen to our episode last week when we had Ben on, we talked about how the Lordship controversy of salvation was kind of an in-house debate among dispensationalists. Right. In a lot of ways, um, the shepherd controversy, which is what kind of sprung the federal vision, which sort of formed it, 
the shepherd controversy is sort of the reformed world's version of the lordship controversy. So Norman Shepard was a theologian who was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He was ordained in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, um, and he started to teach things that some people were very concerned about. And so the theolo- the theological faculty at the seminary, as well as the, um, the I believe it's Presbytery, and I think it actually went to the level of a general uh, assembly. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Right, it did. But they it started did. to examine his um, views, and he was eventually um, removed from his teaching post at Westminster Seminary. And he wasn't uh, defrocked from the OPC, but charges had been filed. And that was the way it was looking like it was going to go. So he left the OPC. He joined a different uh, reform denomination and continued to teach his views. And if you look at the people who were who came out of the Shepherd controversy, the people who supported him, a lot of the people who were his students, those are the same names that we see uh, who were signers of the federal vision statement that we're going to look at, or who were arguing in favor of the of what came to be known the federal came to become known as the federal vision. So this isn't an episode about the Shepherd controversy. There's lots of great writing out there. R. Scott Clark has done a lot of good work on that, um, but you can't really separate the two. Right. The Shepherd controversy gave birth to the group of theological people who um, came to express what came to be known as the federal vision. So um, that just goes to show that like theological controversies may seem like they have sort of encapsulated um, impacts that like Shepard's Shepard's influence during his day was not all I mean, was not all that great. It was a controversy basically within one small corner of the reformed world. But as people who learn from him sort of spread out to other parts of the reformed world, it's become a much bigger issue. Um, and some of those names are names that you would recognize as like kind of people on the fringes of the reformed world now. Right. Right. And just to give an example of how that leads into understanding of what is kind of now commonly espoused, even that is probably not fair because it's the, the FE stuff is like really broad, but to give an example of what you said about the difference in definite defining different words. So when this, the whole thing basically started with Shepard, he started by defining faith in the act of justification to be faith and works. And so right away, what starts this divergence path is the fact that he's saying it wasn't that in justification, faith is receiving and resting and works are evidence of some sort of like vindictory justification, but they were two parts in faith. So there were works and there were faith. So, and this is where it gets into like, he moves all the way into baptism, which I think we'll get into, but all that to say is like to affirm what you're saying these things do tend to start in that kind of way. And then they kind of like snowball, they compound and it kind of moves forward. So right from the beginning, this is a matter of defining what do we mean by certain words? Yeah. And I'm actually reading, um, I mentioned it on the show last week, but the book Christ the Lord, which is a collection of essays edited by Mike Horton. um, That was kind of the reformed response to the Lordship controversy. And it's interesting because John MacArthur actually does that same thing. So the Lordship side of the uh, lordship controversy, John MacArthur and people on his camp, they actually said that faith, o- obedience is part of faith. And so Horton has, it's kind of a devastating critique. It's, it's a, I mean, it was a long time ago, it was 25 years ago. So Horton was younger and probably a little more headstrong than he is now, but it's a pretty aggressive essay. Um, I was actually surprised reading it. It didn't, it didn't really feel like Horton because Horton is usually so, so even keel, but it, it's a lot of the same kinds of 
um, mistakes that are made by MacArthur and his camp saying like, well, faith includes obedience. Well, the implication of that is that we are saved in part by obedience because obedience is part of faith and we're saved through faith. Um, and so the Reformed tradition has always said, no, obedience is a necessary kind of consequence. It's a necessary outflow of faith. So faith that produces obedience is what we're saved through, but the obedience and the faith have to, you have to maintain a distinction between the two. Right. So let me give you what I would say, and you let me know if this is fair. So let me give you like, just to throw out there, one of like the main kind of distinct is one of the things that defines the, the FE stuff um, would be how they understand baptism. So my yes. understanding is what we're, what we're putting forward is in baptism, every baptized person receives all the benefits of Christ. So that'd be what we'd normally understand, election, union with Christ, justification, adoption. So that one is in the covenant right. by grace, but one somebody's going to retain those benefits and remain or become elect, united to Christ and justified by cooperating with grace through trusting and obeying. So that is where right. I think we see this scheme to combat like evangelical antinomianism, which is just like moralism by another name, right? But I think that's huge. Right. So how, how they understand what's happening in baptism and then that there must be some kind of cooperating effort to keep you there or to essentially push you over the edge if for whatever reason you were baptized, but not elect at the time. I mean, what do you think? Is that a fair assumption, like definition of one of the main pieces it is, and we'll we'll get into the specifics, but in a lot of ways, if you go back and listen to our New Paul um, episode, I kind of talked about how within the New Paul camp, there's kind of a, there's a sort of predestinarian group, N.T. Wright would sort of fall in that, right. that the people who persist in the covenant, the people who persist within the, you know, the boundary markers of the Christian church um, and ultimately are, are justified on the last day. Those people, for right at least, are predestined to do that. And God provides the faith and the works for them to do that. So in a lot of ways, federal vision ends up being kind of a uniquely Presbyterian version of the new perspective on Paul. And that's where the connection lies, right. is that if you take a really, if you take the language and sort of the broad contours of the Westminster Confession position on decretal election, those kinds of things. You take that language and you apply it to the new perspective on Paul and you basically end up with federal vision. So it might be helpful for people to kind of pause and go back and listen to that episode before they continue because um, a lot of those same kinds of themes come forward. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go ahead and we're going to go through kind of piece by piece what's called the joint statement on federal vision uh, and sort of pull out specific things that are, are wrong, that are problematic and why they're problematic. So if you are not driving or if you're not at work and you can afford the time to pull this document up and kind of go through it with us, it might be helpful to have it in front of you. We're going to try to read as much of this as we can because one of the critiques and, and complaints that this camp has is that they're commonly misrepresented. Part of the reason they're commonly misrepresented is because you can get two federal vision guys in the same room and they're going to use terms completely different. So no matter right. what you say, you're misrepresenting one of them. If you accurately represent Doug Wilson's perspective on baptismal inclusion, then you're misrepresenting Peter Lightheart's you know version of it. So we're going to stick to the words of this joint statement. We're going to we're going to use this as our structure and our framework because we want to be respectful to their words. We want their voice to speak in terms of explaining and articulating what they believe. 
Um, but again, even this is subject to interpretation. So if you're a Federal Vision guy and you're listening to this, um, we would love to get your feedback. We'd love to, you know, interact with you via email. But just to be blunt, like we're not going to spend a lot of time arguing with you about whether we represented you correctly because it's almost impossible to do in this debate. And this, like you've you said already, just to reiterate, is an in-house debate undergirded by love. So our point in having this discussion is to better understand and equip ourselves to to kind of interact with this particular worldview, for lack of a better word. But it's also hopefully a call for all of us to continue to examine our theology, understand where our biases are, and affirm what we believe with the scriptures. And let, of course, that be the paragon or the sieve through which we let pass everything that we're saying is important for justification and salvation. So this is just an attempt to continue that conversation. So I think it's profitable to, to do it like this and to hear from them directly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to start out real quick by just sort of reading a little bit from their sort of introduction to the joint vision. Um, and real quick, I, I haven't been able to um, see clearly why exactly it's called the federal vision, but the closest thing that I can um, come to is we're going to see that they really, their sort of central theme and the central unifying thing is this concept of covenant. And that's why I say right. this is kind of a distinctly Presbyterian thing is because they take the covenant theology of Presbyterianism and they kind of like blow it up and put it on steroids. So there's some distinctions that Presbyterians make that these guys either deny or they collapse or they somehow modify that causes problems in the system, right? We've talked repeatedly about how systematic theology, if you change one piece, kind of the whole thing shifts and changes. So I just want to read this um, first paragraph um, to sort of set the tone and the stage for where we're at. It says, greetings in the Lord. Many of us who have signed this statement are also confessionally bound to the three forms of unity or to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The following brief statement, therefore, should be understood as being in harmony with those other confessional commitments, a supplement to them and not an example of generating another system of doctrine. In any place where statements here would constitute an exception to whatever confessional standard we are under, they are exceptions that have been noted and approved by our respective presbyteries or classes. We have sought to maintain an eagerness to submit our teaching to our respective presbyteries for their evaluation and see this statement as consistent with that desire. So they're starting this, this vision statement. They're starting it off by saying they believe that what they are putting forward is consistent with the Westminster standards, mostly the Westminster standards, but also the three forms of unity. They're also saying that the presbyteries or classes, which is kind of the Dutch reformed version of a presbytery, more or less, um, have noted these exceptions if they constitute exceptions. I actually find that a little hard to believe because one of the hallmarks of um, the federal vision is pato communion. And I don't know of a single um, reformed body in terms of the PCA, which is where most a lot of these guys were ordained, that allows for paedo communion. And there are actually instances, R.C. Sproul Jr. actually was not able to be ordained in the PCA because he affirmed paedo communion. So I'm a little dubious about that claim, but we're going to take it at face value. And they continue and say, in addition, in the books, articles, and websites that are part of the broader federal vision discussion, there are many issues being discussed and distinctive positions held that are not addressed below. We have limited ourselves to those issues that have been a significant part of recent controversy or which, in our view, have silently contributed to it. So they're saying that they um, they understand that there are more issues involved, but these are kind of the core distinctive positions that sort of define the group. 
and also which have contributed to the controversy either explicitly or kind of by way of implication. Right. Does that make sense so far yeah. where we're going? I'm, I'm with you. So let's get into some of those things that we kind of pull out that say, here's distinctive pieces and they need some addressing. Okay. So the first um, article, I don't know if you want to call it an article, but the first article that they have is a, at first blush, it kind of looks like a restatement of um, just a general Trinitarianism. Um, one thing that I thought was a little bit um, unusual, especially given some of the people who are in this, is it says all faithful theology and life is conducted in union with an imitation of the way God eternally is. And so we seek to understand all that the Bible teaches on covenant, law, gospel, predestination, sacraments, and on the church in light of an explicitly Trinitarian understanding. The reason that that kind of caught my attention is one of the major people in this movement, in this um, controversy, is Doug Wilson, who you'll know I was pretty pretty firm on in the EFS episodes. So that imitation of the Trinity part makes me a little um, a little gun shy. But other than that, this this Trinitarian statement I, I think is probably just fine. There's not any major issues that I spotted. Did you see anything that stood out as a little weird to you? Not really. If nothing else, though, I agree with you. That's what stood out to me. The Just using that word imitation of the way God eternally is, is a strange phrase. Like that should really be, in my opinion, yeah. unpacked more because I'm not entirely sure what is meant by that. And that phrase alone has caused some controversy in terms of it's too amorphic, like it's too ephemeral. What are we talking about right. when we say imitation and why is imitation necessary to describe this? Is that just a reflection of the fact that all of life is a shadow or is there something deeper behind that? You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the next two sections um, combined form kind of a hyper, um, uh, what I would call like a hyper post mill perspective. So the one of the hallmarks of the federal vision movement is post millennial post millennial eschatology. And um, you can listen to our eschatology episode, but post millennialism is more or less that Christ will return after the millennium to a Christianized kingdom. So um, premillennialism, generally speaking, is that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and everything's going to get terrible. Christ is going to come back and sort of fix it himself. Amillennialism is more or less that Christ is reigning and ruling now and that the current state of affairs on earth is what it is. It's not, not going to be a golden age. There's going to be times of positive things, times of negative things, growth, um, retraction of the church, those kinds of things. Postmill is arguing that the church and the gospel is going to go forward and is going to change the world. Um, and they actually say, um, they actually go so far, I'm going to read this paragraph in whole. It says, we affirm that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We believe that the church cannot be a faithful witness to his authority without calling all nations to submit themselves to him through baptism, expecting, accepting their responsibility to obediently learn all that he has commanded. We affirm, therefore, that the Christian faith is a public faith encompassing every realm of human endeavor. The fulfillment of the Great Commission, therefore, requires the establishment of a global Christendom. So theonomy is a view we haven't talked about too much, but theonomy and um, federal vision, although not formally connected, have a lot in common. And they have sort of overlaps in strange places. And this is one of them, is that if you're reading that on the surface... I'm not sure how you get away from the idea right. that we're going to have a Christian government that enforces the first and second tables of the law, all of those kinds of things. So that's the first area that I would look at and go, that seems a little, a little squirrely. 
Yeah, there's a hard line here because the very next sentence, which when they get into the denial of this section, says, we deny that neutrality is possible in any realm, and this includes the realm of quote-unquote secular politics. So they're, while, like you said, they might not be directly related, but they're like like first cousins. <laughs> like it's, it's right. really close. You'd have to go go there into theonomy, understanding that what, what other option, what else could we be talking about in this particular sentence? Right. So this next section um, is titled Scripture Cannot Be Broken. And this is where um, where I think the federal vision starts to go a little squirrely. So um, it, it reads, we affirm that the Bible in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation is the infallible word of God and our only ultimate rule for faith and practice. Scripture alone is the infallible and ultimate standard for Christians. We affirm further that scripture is to be our guide in learning how to interpret scripture. And this means we must imitate the apostolic handling of the Old Testament, paying close attention to the language, syntax, context, narrative flow, literary style, and typology, all of it integrated in Jesus Christ himself. We deny the Bible can rightly be understood by any hermeneutical hermeneutical grid not derived from the scriptures itself. Um, and then they go on in the next section that says the proclamation of the word it says we affirm that God's spirit has chosen the best ways to express the revelation of God and reality and that the divine rhetoric found in Holy Scripture is designed to strike the richest of all chords in the hearers of the word of God. For this reason, we believe that it's pastorally best to use biblical language and phrasing in the preaching and teaching of the Bible in the church. We deny that it is necessarily unprofitable to translate, quote-unquote, biblical languages into more philosophical or scholastic languages in order to deal with certain problems that arise in the history of the church. At the same time, we do deny that such translations are superior or equal to the rhetoric employed by the Spirit in the text. And we believe that the employment of such hyper-specialized terminology in the regular teaching and preaching of the church has an unfortunate effect of confusing the saints and estranging them from the contact with the biblical use of the same language. For this reason, we reject the tendency to privilege confessional and or scholastic use of words and phrases over the way the same words and phrases are used in the Bible itself. So this is a huge point. It sounds, when you read this paragraphs, they sound just fine, right? Who could complain about that? But what's the problem here, Jesse? I don't know. So when you were going to tell me... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there, so there's lo- the- there's lots of things, but I'm actually curious, like what you think is the biggest thing, because uh, I, I think the way they described it, first of all, it's written really, really well, but I think there's too many holes in this. Yeah. Well, the first thing is, and it's funny because Doug Wilson is like a really sharp um, logician. Um, and, and so it's surprising to me because this is almost like self-defeating because you know what words are not in the Bible? federal vision. Right, exactly. So like this whole thing is a statement that's using extra biblical languages. So their their main point in this, and it's not a point I necessarily disagree with, is that you know the Holy Spirit chose specific words and he chose specific words for a reason. Um and they're saying that we shouldn't privilege the confessional use of terms or the theological academic use of particular terms over the way the Bible uses them. And the way that this um plays out in their theology is that, as I said earlier, the word justification has a particular academic technical definition within Reformed theology. So when we say justification, what we mean is the legal declaration of um, the righteousness of a person. So it's the, the judge slams down the gavel and says, not guilty, right? That's justification. The problem is that 
I shouldn't say the problem. The difficulty is that in the scripture, the word justification or that word group of justification is sometimes used to talk about other things. So what they're saying is that rather than use a term to describe those other things that justification is talking about, rather than use that other term that also has a particular definition, we should use the term justification. So it's ironic that they say that doing that confuses the saints when in point of fact, using the same word multiple ways when you're explaining the Bible actually causes just as much or more confusion, I've found, than translating the language into concepts as you explain them. Right. Is that right? So this goes to one of their kind of main issues, right? They use these terms in ways that are sort of non-standard. And the, the, the sort of double-edged fork of that is that they can say things like, well, we're justified by works. And everyone goes, wait a second, we're justified by works? What are you talking about? And they just point at the scriptures and go, well, yeah, right here, James 2.24. Well, that takes some explanation to, to explain how James 2.24 is not contradictory to various passages in Paul right. or the Gospels. Right. So what they're doing is at the same time they're they're using these terms, they also have a tendency to um, act as though, well, I'm, I'm talking about justification. I'm using the term justification the way the Reformed tradition always has. Well, no, you're not. And we're going to see as we get further on into this kind of where that goes awry and specifically in the concept of covenant where that becomes a major issue. Right. And that's why I was saying I feel like there's a lot of gaps in this explanation because it's an attempt, at least in my opinion, to have your cake and eat it too. You want to be able to choose the definition that you want to in the particular context that you would like to be able to use it without essentially being held accountable to some kind of overarching standard for the use of that word. So I don't see how this gets less confusing. It only makes it more confusing because... Like you said, you have yeah. some things require context. Even the same word requires context. It requires a standard or to set an expectation for this to be what we're talking about when we use this particular language. So, I mean, I assume that they would argue something like, well, we don't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible either. So we can use federal vision because that's extra biblical in a sense, but it's really describing something that is, of course, in the Bible. We're not doing any eisegesis here. We're just doing exegesis, but it is still... Right confusing. So we're not getting any kind of clarity here. I think we're just getting more kind of cloudy in trying to understand what we're talking about. Right. And I mean, the task of exegeting scripture, right? The word exegesis literally just means explaining or um, making clear or something like that. So exegeting the text is not just repeating the words. You know, there's a difference between translating from one language to another and exegeting the text. So just repeating the terms that scripture does is not the same thing as exegesis. And that's a really important distinction that I think needs to be made. So when we come to a text that's talking about, it's talking about the forensic declaration, right? It's talking about God um, imputing our sins to Christ and our, our sins and, and Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. That's talking about justification. Whether or not the text uses the term justification in the language itself in order to properly explain that text, we need to explain that text instead of just right. repeating the words that are there. So that's where I found a lot of um, a lot of their issues are, is that although they're very happy to, to have these long explanations of Scripture, right? Peter Lightheart has some of the longest, strangest, most fanciful 
long interpretations of what scripture says. James Jordan, those guys have these crazy long explanations that honestly, I just don't find are, are all that compelling. But then when it comes to these sort of pet topics that the Reformed tradition wants to push on them a little bit, they go, oh, I'm just, I'm just, it's just a face value reading of what the text has to say. Well, not really. So do you have, um, could you read the section entitled the divine decrees? Cause this is where we're going to start to get into stuff that actually really is a problem up sure. until now. It's been kind of like, um, questionable things that were kind of like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. I feel a little uncomfortable, but once we get to this section line of define divine decrees and things going forward, this is where we run into issues. Well, and can I just say before I read that, the thing that I don't understand yeah. what about uh, the federal vision that this is a good example of with the term justification is if you think of like any definition of any word is like a tree and it has a trunk and there are lots of branches, but there's like a central meaning, which is the trunk. When there's this argument that, well, we're just using this in a more well-rounded biblical way as if to say, we don't really, we didn't weren't really aware, so to speak of what like the kind of orthodox or like standard definition was in the reformed tradition. And we're, we're just, you know, we didn't know we were going against that. I just don't understand that because the way that we use justification is exactly as you have defined it. So when you move away from that and then just start slapping it into lots of different circumstances or positions. So this, this idea that like, well, I don't understand why there's so much confusion with us. We're being very, very clear. Right. How can that be? Like they know, right? What the standard definition has right. been. So what's the deal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I try to be charitable. Um, Doug Wilson in particular has struck me as somebody who um, uses language in an exceptionally slippery way. So just a quick example of this is sometime last year, maybe six, seven months ago, he posts an article to his blog that's titled Federal Vision No More, right? So everybody's like, oh, Doug Wilson rejected the federal vision. This is great. If you read the article, which I sent to you, and I don't know if you read it or not, I did. but when you read the article, what he says is, I still believe all the stuff that I signed on the Federal Vision Joint Statement. I just don't think the term Federal Vision is helpful anymore. Right. Well, okay, so so all you're saying is you want to call it something different, but you still believe everything that you signed on to. He did the same thing with the EFS controversy. Well, I'm not, I don't advocate eternal functional subordination because I don't like the word subordination, but I affirm everything that those guys say. I just don't like the term. So he, he particularly uses language in a way that kind of like, it's almost like a form of judo where like you, you kind of like redirect the person's energy by like getting out of the way and letting them fall over themselves. So you go charging at Doug Wilson with, you know, with your argument and he's like, well, and he points at a verse that has his his word in it in the way he's using it. And you kind of trip on yourself because all of a sudden you feel like you're arguing against the Bible. But it's not really like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, you were exceedingly kind because I was just going to say you can put lipstick on a pig, but you can't call it a lady. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of the same thing. I, I was yeah. I don't know if I was being exceedingly kind, but I was I was maybe trying to be a little more diplomatic yeah i don't want to get judo chopped by jesus but i can see what you're saying that basically he makes it seem like you're arguing against yourself and against the scripture by just changing the words around right exactly and and that's the most frustrating thing with some of these guys is that you and 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 nt wright does this in some senses but you spend time trying to understand their argument and then in the middle of their argument their term the word changes its meaning and so you're talking about we're going to see this in this divine decree section here, but you're talking about one thing 
and you're using a term in one way, and then all of a sudden the term means something different. And it gives you like this rhetorical whiplash where you don't know what you don't know what happened, but your neck hurts. Like, yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, I don't even know where, where to go with this because all of a sudden we're, we're using the same words, but we're talking about something completely different. Right. So here's the divine decree section. It reads, we affirm that the triune God is exhaustively sovereign over all things, working out all things according to the counsel of his will. Because this necessarily includes our redemption in Christ, God alone receives all the glory for our salvation. Before all worlds, God the Father chose a great host of those who would be saved, and the number of those so chosen cannot be increased or diminished. In due time, Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, and in that sacrifice he secured the salvation of all those chosen for salvation by the Father. And at the same time, in the earthly life of each person so chosen, the Holy Spirit brings that person to life, enables him to persevere in holiness to the end. Those covenant members who are not elect in the decretal sense enjoy the common operations of the Spirit in varying degrees, but not in the same way that those who are elect do. Right. So right there at the end, you start to see what I'm talking about. So up until that point, it reads like a perfectly orthodox, great explanation of Westminsterian right, exactly. uh, election or decretal theology, right? God chooses and exhaustively is sovereign over all things. He knows who he's going to save and he saves every single one of them. And then you right get to on. that last paragraph and it says those covenant members who are not elect in the decretal sense enjoy the combination of the spirit, the common operation of the spirit in varying degrees, but not the same way that those who are elect do. Well, the problem with that is that they're now talking about being elect in some other sense. And we're going to get to that later, but they've, they've taken this normal defined term, right? Election has a, a clear, distinct understanding in reformed theology. The elect are those whom God chose before the foundation of the earth, foundation of the world, according to his goodwill in order to save, right? No conditions, no exceptions, no failure. Those he chose, he um, also predestined, and those he predestined, he also justified, called all those different things, golden chain from Romans 8, right? The the Federal Vision guys are saying there's another way, there's another sense of being elect. Right. There are, there are people who are the elect who will not be saved. Well, when you get behind what they're saying, the, that doesn't make any sense to call those people the elect. Who are they chosen by? Not God, right? So this is starting to show where they go. And then we get to um, what they deny in this section. So if you want to read the denial from this one too, that would be great. We deny that the unchangeable nature of these decrees prevents us from using the same language in covenantal ways as we described our salvation from within that covenant. We further deny this covenantal usage is quote-unquote pretend language, even where the language and terminology sometimes overlap with the languages of the decrees. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may keep the words of his law. We affirm the reality of the decrees, but deny that the decrees quote-unquote trump the covenant. We do not set them against each other, but expect them to harmonize perfectly as God works out all things in accordance with his will. So this is where um, every Baptist who has dramatically misrepresented the Presbyterian view on infant baptism, these guys prove all of those misrepresentations to be true. Right. So what's, what's going on here is they're saying 
that, yeah, there's God has this decree, but we also talk about decree language and covenant language in terms of like uh, the visible church. We'll get into that later here. But they're saying that there's there's this group of people that become the elect when they join the Christian church, when they become part of the covenant community, they become the elect. And then if they fall away, then they fall away from being the elect, right? So that's that's where you get this pretend language. They make a big deal out of that. Well, I don't really know how else to describe it, right? Because that person obviously was not chosen by God. They weren't right. elect in the sense that the reformed tradition uses the term elect. Now we, we have categories for how to think about these people that appear to be Christians and then turn out not to be. They appear to be in union with Christ, but they end up not to be. But they're saying like we affirm quote, we affirm the reality of the decrees, but we deny that decrees trump the covenant. Well, what, what does that mean? Right. And then they just sort of say like, we're not going to set them against each other. We believe they're harmonious, but there's no, and I'm sure some of their other work, I'm sure works out how they believe that they're harmonious, but they're starting to make this shift where covenant membership, which comes with all of the blessings of God, all of the blessings and benefits of Christ come with covenant membership. This is no longer based on God's eternal decree. It's no longer based on God choosing a people for himself who would be in the substance of the covenant. It's instead about who is visibly associated with the body of Christ. Who can we look at and point to that has some sort of objective marker that makes them part of the body of Christ? And that's where we start to go kind of awry. Right. Because historically, the idea of election in of itself has always been binary. So now we're getting this kind of almost, right. well, th- this allows them to insinuate conditions into the covenant of grace, which are supported by their definition of justification. So it, that's why it kind of comes back into this full circle. But if anybody thinks we're making too big a deal out of like one adjective there, which is decretal, this just goes to show that we're creating a whole separate category now. And we got to understand what is this category and why is language being used that sounds like it's that category, but it's not really. And then, of course, anybody I I feel like that has to say, we're not going to set these up against one another. What they mean is like, it's pretty clear that these are getting set up against one another. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it it really looks like they are, but we're not. And it's like, we're just saying that you're not, doesn't. Exactly. So I'm going to fly through a couple of these other ones um, because I want to make sure we get to the sort of the the money shot here. Um, They make a different distinction in the church, right? The classic reform distinction is between the visible and the invisible church. So the visible church, more or less, is everyone that we have a visible marker of some sort, an objective marker that they claim the name of Christ, right? They're baptized, they go to church, they call themselves a Christian, um, you know, whatever the different markers might be. The invisible church is, you can think of it as the church that the invisible God sees, right? The he, God knows who really is his and who really is not. And that's the invisible church. It's the, the whole number of Christians across eternity that really are truly elect. So the invisible church and the elect in classic reform theology are an identical set. It's the same group of people. The visible church and the elect are not necessarily the same group of people. There's wheat and there's tares. There's people in the church that are not among the elect that will eventually fall away and will reveal that they're not among the elect. Instead, they want to talk about the historical church and the eschatological church. 
And so what they're saying is that the historical church is all of those throughout history who have claimed the name of Christ. The eschatological church are the full number of chosen that will be resurrected and raised to new life. So it's a similar distinction, but they use it in ways to sort of like change the terms about how we understand these different categories. And then um, they kind of go on to some talk about Reformed Catholicity. Um, They're trying to kind of claim, they're sort of hedging themselves against accusations that they don't affirm justification sola fide. So that's another huge part of the issues in their system is the way that they frame justification. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I think the issues surrounding how they talk about the coven are actually more fundamental. Agreed. Um, and I've studied them more, so it's a little bit selfish of me to to stick with what I know. But um, we get to um, the covenant of life. And some of the issues within this are just linguistic. They reject the category of merit as a leg- as like a realistic, legitimate thing. And so what ends up happening with that, and this is where their views of justification kind of go a little a little janky, is Christ no longer merits our salvation because they deny merit as a category that's legitimate. So Adam was under the covenant of works, but that covenant of works was a gracious covenant. Right. Now we affirm that the covenant of works was issued as an act of grace. That is, God didn't have to extend the covenant of works. But the covenant of works itself is not a gracious covenant. Right? Adam has a task, and if he fulfills that task, he'll be rewarded. If he doesn't fulfill that task, he's going to be punished. Um, and that task is perfect perpetual obedience. So he doesn't he doesn't succeed, and so he's cursed. Now, there's no grace in that. The 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 even the possibility of knowing God was gracious, but the way that the the covenant itself is structured is not a gracious covenant. But by evacuating the idea of merit and claiming it is a gracious covenant, they've collapsed the two covenant system that reformed both reformed Baptist and reformed Presbyterian covenant theology rests on. They've taken that bi covenantal structure and collapsed it into a mono covenant structure, um, which is, is a problem. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, this is the biggest thing for me because We've talked already, you and I have had conversations about, technically we would kind of affirm three covenants, like the pre-temporal one between the Father, Son, and implicitly the Holy Spirit, the covenant works before the right. fall, covenant of grace after the fall. Here's what's so weird to me about this whole perspective is the federal vision is going to affirm only one covenant. Like you said, it's a gracious conditional covenant before the fall and then a gracious conditional covenant after the fall. So here's right. the irony to me. This is like a balloon. If you fill up a balloon and it's got air in it, you squeeze one end, it, the air just rushes to all to the other side. So what this does is right. if you take away the covenant of works from Adam and from Christ, then it's now up to us to cooperate with grace and thereby fulfill our part, whatever that is, in the covenant to remain in the benefits of Christ. I can't get away from that. And that's like right. a major departure, right? Yeah. So this this sentence, when I read it, I actually had to read it like six times to get what they were saying. Yeah, but it's, it, confusing. it's a stunning sentence if you really understand what they're getting at. It says, Adam could forfeit or demerit the gift of glorification by disobedience, but the gift or continued possession of that gift was not offered by God to Adam conditioned upon Adam's moral execution or uh, moral exertions or achievement. In line with this, we did not we affirm that until the expulsion from the garden, Adam had the free was free to eat from the tree of life. We deny that Adam had to earn or merit righteousness, life glorification or anything else. So what they're saying is that Adam could lose the gift by disobedience, but he didn't gain it by obedience, more or less. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. Agreed. It's so it weird. It doesn't it doesn't 
if it's a gift, then you can't lose it, right? It's not like someone comes to my birthday and I don't say the right words and they're like, well, you didn't shake my hand when I walked in the door, so I'm taking my gift and going home. Well, everyone looks at that and goes, well, that's not really a gift then. So the fact that you could lose it based on disobedience automatically means that you're gaining it based on obedience. Right. So I, I affirm what yeah, they're trying cra- to say. What they're trying to say is that Adam's Adam's obedience doesn't somehow obligate God to reward him. It's not a strict merit, right? It's not that God is obligated to extend the gift to Adam. He does it graciously. But there has to be an element of um, merit and obedience built into this covenant. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense. If, if obedience had nothing to do with the possession of the gift or the obtainment of the gift, then disobedience also could not serve the converse of that. It just doesn't make any right. sense. It, it, if, so for somebody to say like, here's the gift and here's what you need to, you have to do to keep it. That's like not good news. It's definitely not good news for sinners who cannot do their part, even with the help of grace. And for that matter, let me make it yeah. equally. I'm going to try to make an equally like controversial statement in a way. So uh, forgive me, Federal Vision people, <laughs> but here's what I don't get. If grace and cooperation with grace, as it's being expressed here in this covenantal understanding, if that's such good news, why not just skip Federal Vision and go straight to Roman Catholicism? Because that's yeah. been like the consistent Roman doctrine since the Middle Ages, like since like the Council of Trent. So what I'm I'm not understanding is how can we not let our minds go there? Because this seems to be like shading more in that direction. It has more in common with that understanding than the traditional reform perspective, which says Jesus paid it all. And he, there was an actual covenant of works for Adam that worked both ways, so to speak, because that's how covenants work. And how can we not, how can we misunderstand what's being said here? Right, right. So um, I am just realizing that we are at the 58 minute mark of a 60 minute show and we have about 30 more minutes of material that we want to cover. So I'm going to go into warp speed and cover the highlights oh, and maybe man, we'll have to come bra- back on another day to more of this. You are brave. All but, right. Um, Hit the high points. So so there's a weird denial of the distinction between law and gospel. That would be really interesting to get into, but I don't really have time um, and I don't, I don't fully understand it yet. But um, they say that the quote, traditional evangelistic application of law and gospel are certainly scriptural and appropriate. But then they also say something about the fact that um, any passage, whether imperative or indicative, can be heard by the faithful as good news, and that any passage, whether containing gospel promises or not, will be heard by the rebellious as tolerable uh, demand, intolerable demand. Well, the fact is that the, the Beatitudes, most of the Beatitudes, are not good news to me. Right. Because I'm not meek. I'm not, I don't hunger for thirst and righteousness. Um, I'm not particularly persecuted. Um, I don't, you know, I don't mourn my sins. I'm not pure in heart. All of those things, that's a standard that I will never live up to. So that's not good news for me. What's good news for me is that I don't have to because Christ has done it for me. So this weird denial of this is another one of those instances where they, say the traditional evangelistic uh, traditional evangelistic application of law and gospel are certainly scriptural and appropriate, but then the next passage is basically, if you summarize, we deny the traditional evangelistic application of law and gospel. So you have to read these carefully to really get there. But I want to jump down to their last paragraph, which is on apostasy, because I think this is where the rubber really hits the road. So um, up until now, a lot of this has probably felt like I don't really get what the big deal is. But when we get to the last paragraph on apostasy, 
what it says is we affirm that apostasy is a terrifying reality for many baptized Christians. All who are baptized into the triune name are united with Christ in his covenantal life. And so those who fall away from that position of grace are indeed falling from grace. The branches are cut away from Christ, are genuinely cut away from someone, cut out of a living covenant body. The connection that an apostate has to Christ was not merely external. We deny that any person who is chosen by God for final salvation before the foundation of the world can fall away and finally be lost. The decretally elect cannot apostatize. So what is so troubling about this? Is they're saying, you know, we didn't we didn't read their section on baptism. We didn't read their section on um, the sacraments, but they're saying that the union that a a, a non elect person, non decretally elect person, right? So there's decretally elect who are chosen by God for final salvation. Then there's non decretally elect people who are, I don't know, chosen for God for temporary membership in the church. Which, ironically, Roman Catholics have a category for that. Exactly. Augustine talked about election to faith and election to perseverance. But that exactly. They're saying that both the decretally elect and the non-decretally elect have the exact same relationship with Christ and have all of the exact same benefits when they're within the church community. So there's a time period. There's The non-decretally elect people have a period where they they join the visible community of the church. They have all of the same benefits of the, the decretally elect. They're genuinely saved. They, they're, they're genuinely justified. They're genuinely saved. They enjoy fellowship and life-giving union with Christ. The same life-giving union with Christ that a decretally elect person has. But then somehow, some way, that non-decretally elect person apostatizes. And they're cut off from that source of vital union with Christ. That is not just terrifying. That is a borderline heresy from a reform right. perspective. And this is really right. where that report from the PCA kind of hones in and says this, they use the phrase, it strikes at the vitals of religion, right? This undercuts the very gospel that the Reformed Church preaches. And so this is where I think the biggest issue is, right? They, they have this strange category of people who have all the benefits of Christ temporarily. And somehow that is supposed to give assurance to people. And then what happens then is the way you have assurance is is by persistence, by perseverance. You gain assurance in the faith, not by looking to Christ, not by saying Christ died for me and I trust him, but by persevering in the faith. So right. you're always looking off to the future and saying, well, as long as I persevere in the faith and I know that I'm of the elect. Now, that's not 100% wrong. Right. There's an element of that that is true and good, but they've undercut by making apostasy really falling away from union with Christ. They've eliminated any real sense of assurance that the believer can have. Yes, that's absolutely true. That's why this becomes a weird hybrid of it is trust in Christ, but also performance. There is an element of performance for it without a doubt because they've taken away the original covenant of works. And it seems like they're at least aware that this is this has is going to have an impact for lots of different people because it strikes me that this says it's a terrifying reality for many baptized Christians. Right. So they're saying that it's possible that a plurality of people could be impacted by this. And the impact is going to come, at least by way of what they're saying here, the impact is that we have, or some group of us, have misunderstood all of this and we're living in a, a spiritual reality that is not accurate. 
and therefore that's causing some kind of apostasy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I hadn't intended to make this connection as strongly, but one of the major critiques that Horton and others writing in that Christ the Lord book make of, um, you know, they, they tear apart Zane Hodges, non-lordship salvation position. They just demonstrate how ridiculously unbiblical it is. But when they turn to MacArthur and they, they focus most of their, I don't know if assault is the right word, but they focus most of their energy on MacArthur's position. What they demonstrate is that MacArthur's position undercuts the assurance of faith. Because although what's called the practical syllogism, right, I, uh, the elect bear fruit, I am bearing fruit, therefore I am of the elect, right? That's called the practical syllogism. The Lutherans, the Reformed, everybody throughout history has used that. But what MacArthur did is he made obedience and good works part of faith, right? And so if you don't have those good works, then you don't have faith in, in a, a much more radical sense than what the Reformed actually would argue. And the federal vision position has done the exact same thing, right? They've made it so that your good work is perseverance in the faith. Right, exactly. Your assurance that perseverance in obedience is part and parcel of faith itself. So um, it really becomes a problem for people because it has it has taken people's eyes off of Jesus. Because after all, what good does union with Christ do me if he's gonna if he's gonna let me fall away? Right. Not only is he going to let me fall away, but he has chosen me to fall away. So he's chosen me to be united with him, but then he's also chosen me to be disunited with him at some future point. Mm-hmm. And I can never know which one of those I am. Right. Instead, the reform position is that if Christ has chosen me to be united with him by through faith, then I'm secure in my u- union with him for all eternity. Right. He grasps me and he is never going to let me go. The The reformed, uh, the, the federal vision position can't can't affirm that. Right. It, and that's a really sad reality. It is. And I can see how maybe by giving some benefit of the doubt, this is, they're just kind of making, I don't want to say unwittingly. I mean, they know what they're doing. I can see this as a strike against uh, antinomianism, against moralism. I get right. that. This idea of that there is a responsibility. We need to work out our salvation. Um, but it's God, of course, who's willing and working within us. So in justification, faith isn't trusting and obeying. It's only trusting in Christ in his finished work for sinners. We're not saying that we don't obey God. We certainly must obey God's holy law, but we're doing that by grace and out of gratitude and only as evidence of the new life that God has given us in Christ by grace. That's the difference for me. And I think that you're right. What happens is this is a very, very attractive. It's it's still somewhat novel, I guess, in many circles. It's attractive, especially if you've come from like an ex-fundamentalist or very legalistist perspective, because it seems like it's a hybrid that marries both of them. We get to say, Certainly grace is so important. All we have is covenants of grace. It's grace all day, right. every day of the week and twice on Sundays. That's great. But there's this little element of performance that I think comes alongside and really resonates with our humanity because we are a people that want to perform because in performing, we feel vindicated. We feel like we've earned something. We feel like we are putting others in debt to ourselves. And that is very warm and comfortable to us. But the scandal of justification is the imputation by which God declares, you are made just for not doing anything. And in fact, you need to realize that you're empty-handed and you haven't done anything in so much as you can fully appreciate in some sense who Christ is and what he has done on your behalf and give him all of your worship 
ingratitude. If you suck that away, you create this horrible vacuum that's either at best going to make you feel like you're enslaved and at worst is going to be totally heretical. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way that I like to think about it is this, and then we can kind of close out, is the reformed position. Well, let's, let's start with the federal vision position. The federal vision position and the lordship salvation position and, and probably a whole other hosts of things. This is not a new issue in the, in the Christian church, right? The struggle between legalism and antinomianism has been going on since the very beginning. But the federal vision position says that faith is perseverance. Right. Right. Faith is perseverance. And you're united to Christ through faith, which is perseverance. The lordship position says faith is submission. Faith is surrender. Faith is obedience. And you're united to Christ through faith that is obedience or is surrender. The reformed position is that faith is faith. Right? Faith is right. trust. And a person who trusts will obey. Right. A person who trusts will surrender. A person who trusts will persevere. But faith is not perseverance, surrender, or obedience. Right. There's a distinction between those things. Right. So we have to maintain that distinction or we completely lose the gospel. Amen. We lose it a hundred percent. And there are people who are listening to this going, wait a second, you defended Mark Jones. How are you saying this? Well, this is not what Mark Jones is teaching. And it's funny that we've had like a series of episodes that have all kind of circled around this same topic. But Mark Jones, John Piper, R. Scott Clark, um, I'm going to close with a quote from Horton if I can find it. But all of those people are saying the same thing. Faith that doesn't work is not a faith that saves. But faith is not works. Right. Right. That's as... as close as you can get it that's not what the federal vision says that's not what new perspective says that's not what the lordship position says uh, the lordship salvation position so we have to retain that distinction between faith and works or like i said we lose the gospel it's a little bit like beer wouldn't you say tony i would love to see how you're (laughs) going to make this connection so here's my kind of closing metaphor my one metaphor for our particular conversation today It's like beer in that I think we make our understanding of works and obedience way more complicated than is necessary. So with beer, when you put in the ingredients, the the yeast and the water and hops and some kind of grain, it is so thoroughly transformed that one of the byproducts of that process is carbon dioxide and alcohol. Once it has been so transformed, there's no going back. It is now its own thing. It is beer or it is wine. And therefore, it doesn't need to continue to try to make alcohol to be alcohol. It becomes those things as a natural byproduct because it has actually, literally, and been truly transformed. And the same, I think, is true for us. When we are transformed by Christ, when God grabs a hold of us and regenerates us, like actually removes that heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh, we start to change in such a way in this long process of sanctification that we do these good works and we ought not to worry about trying to do them to persevere. I just think we make it more complicated than it has to be. So we just need to be more like beer. Yeah. So I'm going to close uh, with this quote. It's uh, from Christ the Lord, uh, page 56, fully acknowledging that this is not a response to the um, Federal Vision controversy, but I think Horton would apply this critique to Shepard as much as he does to um, to MacArthur. He says, the solution is simple. As Christ is the answer to our guilt and condemnation through justification, 
so he is the answer to our bondage and corruption, sanctification. He takes away not only the verdict, but also the slavery, to justify us in the heavenly courtroom without giving us the gifts that, by virtue of that heavenly verdict belong to us, would be cruel and unjust on God's part. No, he does not simply put money into our bank account and then leave us stranded along the side of the road, beaten and bruised. Holiness is not an option for the Christian. But hold on, I can hear the hearts racing. Holiness, the impossible dream? To be sure, but with God, all things are possible. Holiness is not an option. It is a requirement. But this is not a threat. It's a promise. What God began, he will finish. In Christ, we are already holy, righteous, sanctified, and reconciled. Now we are called to live what we are, not to become what we are not yet. So where this plays in with the Federal Vision controversy is that those whom God has justified, he has truly justified. And all of those who he justified, he is also glorified. And so the federal vision would make space for a group of people that are justified, but will not be glorified. And so that it just flatly contradicts the right. Bible. Just straight up flatly contradicts the Bible. Amen. That's as good as any place all right, Jesse. to end this episode. <laughs> yes. So here's yeah, we how we could go um, for several more hours, I think. Yeah, ser- seriously, nobody, nobody wants that. So uh, here's how you can join us in this little conversation. We love receiving emails. We love receiving voicemails. We love it when you mention us on Twitter. And you can email us at reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at reformedbrohood. Or you can dial up your phone, if dialing is still a thing these days, and call 607 444 Six seven, bros, and leave us a little voicemail. Yes, and especially what we would like is for you to tune in next week because we have books to still give away. Yes, we do. Because people didn't claim their books. Yes, we do. But we ran out of time this week. But more than that, I would love it if you know someone that you think is struggling with assurance of faith. If you could share this episode with them. And just reassure them that if God has called them, he will also justify them or has justified them, and he will also glorify them. Amen. And that the beginning of the chain is just as secure as the end of the chain, and there's no break anywhere along the way. Mm, Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. (laughs) 